Hello, friends. It's time for the second hour of Open Line with Dr. Michael Redelnik, Moody Radio's Bible study across America, where we're taking your questions about the Bible, about God, about your Christian life. I'm Dr. Mike Fabares. I'm filling in today for Dr. Michael Redelnik, who's out there celebrating the graduates of the Moody Bible Institute as all the ceremonies are going on right now. I'm the founding pastor of Compass Bible Church in South Orange County, California. Happen to be in studio in Chicago today, which is a blessing. I'm the Bible teacher also that you'll hear on Focal Point Radio, which is covered here on Moody Radio, author of several books, including a new Moody publishing book that's going to come out in a couple months on the sin of envy. I hate to be such a... uh, a party pooper there and talk about the, the sin of envy, but I think we need this book. So you'll hear more about that, I trust, in the next couple of months, and I hope it will be an edifying and helpful book to you. But today, it's about answering your Bible questions, and if you have a question, we want you to call in and get on the air, 877-548-3675. If you didn't get that down, get it down now, 877 548 3675, or you can send your question to us on our website, openlineradio.org. Look for that Ask Michael a Question form, fill it out, and you can get onto our program in the mailbag segment, which is a great way for you to have your question answered without going on the radio, if that is an aversion to you. But if you're not afraid of that, we'd love to have you on the air on the program here. So keep your Bibles open, uh, as many people do, as we heard in the first hour. They grab a cup of coffee, they sit there on a Saturday, and they get their questions answered. We hope you enjoy this program. It's a joy to do, and we're going to go back now and get some of your questions answered. We're going to go to David now in Cleveland, Ohio. David, you're on the air with Mike Fabares. How can I help? Uh, well, thanks for taking my call. Um, just just a question on Ephesians 4, I think it's verse 8. Uh, when he ascended on high, he took captivity captive and gave gifts to men. I had heard that that was referring to a psalm where David's coming back with the ark and he gives uh, gives uh, meat and rations to everybody to celebrate. Um I just w- was wondering if you could just kind of explain that that verse and if it has a uh, connection to King David like that. Yeah, it does. Actually, his conquest of the Jebusite city that was a stronghold that they didn't clear out during Joshua's campaign. And when David finally takes that stronghold of the Jebusite city, there's a victory psalm, Psalm 68, that is uh, celebrated and used as a worship song throughout Israel's history. And even today, we uh, worship the Lord with the Psalter, the Psalms. And uh, that particular psalm is a picture here which points to the ultimate reality that is underscored in Ephesians chapter 4, and that is that Christ was the ultimate victor, who when he ascended on high, his spirit came and endowed the church with all the gifts that it needed, not just the apostolic and prophetic gifts of that first century time in the book of Acts, but all throughout the church age, we've got the ability to have people uh, be pastors and teachers and to be evangelists and to be people that build up and equip the body of Christ, which is where he goes next in Ephesians chapter 4. Yeah, so if you want to see the historic psalm that this is based on, go to Psalm 68, and you can read about it. And much like David killing Goliath, many of these Old Testament pictures that are historically accurate and true, 
They're absolutely 100% historically true. They all point ultimately to a way in which the Lord fulfills all of these promises. He's our victor, and he's the one who's without sin. We had a question earlier about Bathsheba in the first hour, and of course, we know all the heroes of the Scripture, they're deficient in one way or another, except the Lord Jesus Christ, who the whole Bible is really ultimately hailing as the great and perfect king. So here's a good example of that. David takes a city there in the middle of the promised land that becomes the city of Jerusalem, and it's celebrated as he gives gifts and spoil to people. Uh, And yet, the reality is that Christ is the ultimate one who does that. He does it for the church even today. If you have a good pastor in your church leading or good Christian counselor, using God's Word to build up people in their Christian life. Those are the gifts that the Lord from heaven is giving to your church and to the body of Christ to make it a glorious place. And I trust that it's increasingly so. As every spot and wrinkle gets scrubbed out and ironed out, God is working on His church, and He's doing it through the giftedness of the people that He sends. Does that help, David? That's beautiful. Thanks much. Okay, thanks so much. We're heading back to Chicago now. Debbie, you're on the air listening on WMBI. How can I help today? Uh, hi, Michael. Thank you so much. I used to live in California, too, or in Orange County. It's a beautiful state. Oh, fantastic. Um, <clears throat> listen, my question is, uh, the Gospels, you know, I, I don't know why this is, or even if it's important, but the Gospels seem to differ in time for the crucifixion. For example, I think Luke talks about, you know, it being around 9 o'clock in the morning, you know, when this started, and John mentions that it was noon. The Gospel of John is, talks about being noon. Why Why is there such a difference in time, and does it really matter? Well, the time, you need to understand, is reckoned, depending on whether we're talking about a Roman reckoning of time or a Jewish reckoning of time. And I don't think there's uh-huh. any conflict at all. It's just in how they are giving those hours. And it's much like, I mean, my, my dad was in the military, and, uh, you know, he might give a, uh, a time, but it's it seems different to us, you know, uh, t- t- 19 hours or whatever. Well, yeah. that's different than, yeah, than me knowing true. what time uh-huh. it is, because that's not how I reckon time, because uh, no, I'm no. a civilian. So the realities are that there's no distinction or conflict in when these things actually happened. Uh, they happened in the middle of the day, right? We know that this mm-hmm. is taking place when the darkness comes over the earth supernaturally, where Christ is being crucified. There's yeah. nighttime during the day, which reflects that ninth plague in the Old Testament when darkness came over Egypt. So uh, Mm -hmm. it's just the way of reckoning time, and that we see, unfortunately, in our Bibles, because some of the books are written more to one Jewish audience as opposed to the more Gentile audience, say, in the book of John, and that's where those conflicts come. But they're not conflicts in facts, they're conflicts in how we reckon these things and explain them to different audiences. So I hope that helps, Debbie. Yeah, that really does, sir. Thank you so very much, and you're doing a good job. Oh, thank you, Mm -hmm. Debbie. That's good. Hard to stand in the uh, shoes of Michael Rydelnik, but I'm happy to give it a try today. Let's head out to Vermont. Lisa is listening on WCMD. How can I help today? Um, Hi there. Uh, I have a question from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where um, it says in verse 34, Let the women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but let them subject themselves, just as the law also says. Um, Then it goes on to say if if they want to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. So, as a 20, you know, as a, a 
a woman living in this day when <laughs> when women you know it's it's normal for women to be speaking in the church what what is meant there well, remember the first century, the way that the early church was set up, it was a lot like the Jewish synagogue of the intertestamental period. And just like we see people like Paul coming into a town like uh, Antioch and Pisidia, he would stand up, take the scroll, he'd read from it, he would instruct. Well, he wasn't the, the preacher there, so to speak, right? He was coming in because of the, the, the way in which it functioned, where people could stand up and, and comment and preach and exhort and rebuke. And the reality of that was one that was given to men. That's how it was set up in the Scripture, that they were teaching and exercising that teaching authority over the congregations, and uh, there was a distinction. Now, what was happening in Corinth, we've got to remember, this is really a modern city of the ancient world, and uh, there was a lot of feminism going on, a lot of uh, feministic uh, expressions of women saying, I'm not going to be submissive, I'm not going to have any uh, restraints on our roles in society, and so you've got them, uh, just to use a modern phrase, kind of grabbing the microphone, being disruptive, uh, trying to shout out their own questions and objection to what's going on. That's the picture that's painted in 1 Corinthians 14, and Paul's trying to bring order. There's disruption, there's disorder. He says God is a God of order, and that was not taking place in the church services that were patterned after the synagogue services of the intertestamental period, and so he's trying to bring order to this. And one of the, one of the things he's bringing, which is nothing new to the Scripture, is that the ultimate executive leadership and the pastoral horatory, we would say, the exhorting, rebuking role of the pastoral pulpit is given to men in the church. It's part of the order of creation, and while there's lots of conflicts, even in modern days, not just back to Corinth and ancient Greco-Roman societies, we have it today, uh, there is an order that we can't uh, we, we can't overthrow. God says that in the church, those that are going to be pastors and elders in the church need to be men, and that's the way God sets it up, just like uh, even though our our culture tries to break uh, great against it. Only women can be mothers and nurture children and, and feed them by their bodies. These are the kinds of things that God has set up as an order, and so we submit to those regardless of what culture we have. But just know that if, if you picture a kind of idyllic scene in the first century, it's a very uh, different kind of more modern expression of women trying to express authority over men in these contexts in Corinth. So that's something we need to put into context and know that it's not just a gal getting up and giving announcements or, or being in a women's Bible study and, and expositing the word. All those things are appropriate. It's about the men who are supposed to be leading in that context as the ultimate overseers of those churches, and that wasn't taking place in Corinth, and Paul was bringing correction to that. So I hope that helps, Lisa. Okay, yes. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Uh, and more study, I would say, even on the history of what, what was going on in the roles of women in Corinth, which included things like shaving their heads and trying to be a, a kind of uh, society that's a lot like the one that we're in. And so we need to defer to what God says in a created order, and that, I think, is going to uh, not be what we might envision when we read those texts out of context, but certainly is going to hold to a pattern in the church that I do think is important for us not to lose sight of, no matter what the culture is doing in our day. I'm Pastor Mike Fabares sitting in for Dr. Michael Redelnik. You're listening to Open Line with Dr. Michael Redelnik, Moody Radio's Bible study across America. And the way for you to get involved is to get on the phone and call us. Our toll-free number is 877-548-3675. That number again, 877 
1-800-273-8375. We'll be back right after these messages. People are always asking about the Jewish people and Jesus. That's why Chosen People Ministries is offering a free booklet called Israel, the Jewish People, and Jesus. It explains God's promises to the Jewish people and what they mean today. You'll see how God has preserved his people throughout history and returned them to their land. It reveals how we can all be part of God's plan to reach the Jewish people today. For a free copy of Israel, the Jewish People, and Jesus, just go to the Open Line website. That's openlineradio.org. Scroll down, and you'll see a link that says, A Gift from Chosen People Ministries. Click on that, and you'll be taken to a page where you can sign up for your own free copy of Israel, the Jewish People, and Jesus. Welcome back to Open Line with Dr. Michael Ridelnik. I'm Dr. Mike Fabares sitting in for Dr. Michael Ridelnik. Our phone number is 877-548-3675. That's the number to get on the program today. And Dean is on the program next from Tampa, Florida. Dean, you're talking to Mike Fabares. How can I help? Hi, Mike. Uh, thank you so much for taking my call. Uh, real quick question. With the uh, 10th plague, uh, with the Israelites in Egypt. I know it was the death of the firstborn male child if the house wasn't covered in the blood of the lamb. But I didn't know, was there any type of age cap on that? Like, for instance, if I was the firstborn male child and I was 47 years old, would I have passed away as well? Or was it just really children, you know, under the age of 18 or something of that nature? Yeah, that's hard to say. And and I can't think of a single passage that gives us a cap on that. As a matter of fact, it's always this sense of the superlative word all, right? All, he struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. There's not a single household where there wasn't mourning, where the firstborn was not killed. So, you know, the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, that was who was to be consecrated. So I, I can't think of a single limiting passage that would give us a sense of that, although it does seem that the focus of the lamenting over what's going on even in Pharaoh's household is his child. So could it be that it's just the children? Like, you know, if my dad was the firstborn of his, you know, dad, does that mean he dies? I don't know. I, it seems like, and I and this, I don't want to base this on my assumption of what I, it seems, but it does seem, and this is why you asked the question, Dean, and it's a great question, that it seems to be the firstborn child within the home. Well, if it's a firstborn child, I guess then you're off the hook if you're no longer living in the house. Although I am saying I'm walking on shaky ground right here because I'm searching my brain for any passage that lives limits that, and I don't have one. And I will do some more homework on that, Dean, and make sure. But I'm where you are on this. I can't uh, I can't pin a, a, a limit on this, although I do feel as though the narrative is focusing on household children, but I can't, I can't definitively say. So you've stumped me on that one, Dean, but I will get to the bottom of it, I assure you. Thank you so much for that question, Dean. And, and it was it was a great one. So great that we're going to go to Indianapolis now, and we're going to talk to Luke listening on WGNR. You're on the air with Mike Fabares. How can I help? Hi, Mike. Thanks for taking my call. If you're not taken up in the rapture during the tribulation, can you ask for forgiveness and be saved? 
I wouldn't count on it. I know there'll be many people that are saved during the tribulational period. But here's the thinking I often find. Well, if I reject Christ now, and all of this stuff is true about the taking up of the church, uh, then if I see all that happen, well, then I'll, I'll just turn to Christ then, and it may be a little bit more of a struggle because of the persecution of Christians, but I'll be okay. And the passage I'm thinking of that makes me think that's not a good strategy no matter what because it says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, let me start in verse 9, it says, The coming of the lawless one is with the activity of Satan, right, the ultimate deceiver, with all the power and false signs and wonders, with all the wicked deception of those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth so as to be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion that they may believe what is false in order that they may be condemned. Now, here's the deal. You'd think if everyone knew that their Christian friends were saying, hey, the church is going to be taken up, terrible time is coming, and then the church is taken up, and a terrible time comes, and this world leader emerges, you'd think, well, they would just say, of course, yeah, I I need to become a Christian now, because those Christians were right. And yet, this passage would seem to clearly say to me, if they refused the truth in this age, clearly we're told what the truth of the gospel is, right? Now they are going to be condemned because God is going to be sure that they are going to be deceived by the work of the enemy because they refuse to love the truth and respond to it in the church age. Now, many people that I don't think have ever been confronted clearly with the gospel are going to be saved during the tribulation, but I wouldn't use it as a backup strategy in our evangelism that, hey, put your trust in Christ. If you don't, hey, at least remember this day if we're all gone one day and there's a world leader that emerges and a terrible time breaks out on the planet for seven years, you got to put your trust in Christ then. I would say the odds of that after a clear explanation of the gospel are very low. Does that make sense, Luke? Yes. I've just heard it both ways. Yes, you can, and yes, you can. But my thought is there's the seven years is a long time, and if people were smart, they would get with God and ask for forgiveness. That's my thoughts. Right. Well, I think you're going to have to grapple with Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. That's where we've got to say, where does this passage fit in, that if they refused to love and, and obey the truth, now they're in the tribulational period. A- according to that passage, it seems that if they had the truth presented to them clearly, right, well, then they're going to be deceived and deluded and condemned. And that's, it seems pretty all-encompassing, although, um, you know, it's it's assembling a principle, and we don't want to stretch it too far. There may be exceptions to that, but I can't know for sure. But before one says, yes, you can, I just think we need to somehow incorporate the logic and truth of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 9 through 12 into our thinking. So great question, Luke. Thanks for thinking about prophecy there. It's important. We all should be studying it. Let's go out now to Aurora, Ohio. Bill, you're on the air with Mike Fabares. How can I help? Thank you, Mike. Oh, wonderful. So nice to talk with you, and and I appreciate hearing all your answers this morning on the radio to all the other questions. My question is related to a pattern that seems to exist in the book of Genesis where the second-born or younger son seemed to get the blessing. And in in the case of uh, where it was uh, Rebecca had twins, and of course God even told her before they were born, the older must serve the younger. And then later when when Jacob himself is is blessing uh, Ephraim and Manasseh, he crosses his arms, blesses the younger one. Joseph, of course, gets a little upset, but he said, no, my son, that's the way it's supposed to be. The older must serve the younger. And I'm just wondering, what does that pattern represent in terms of our, 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 
understanding of the New Testament, maybe what Jesus was even telling to Nicodemus. Well, I think even when they were talking about who Christ was, they said, well, come on, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It was the problem that we see throughout the Scripture of men, and by that I mean human beings, men and women, looking at situations and saying, there's the answer, we can see it. And I think it reaches a culmination of the unlikely hero becoming the the hero when Samuel goes out to anoint the next king of Israel. They they had been given a king that was exactly what they wanted. He was a foot taller than everybody else. He was handsome. He was all that the people thought would be the savior of the people. And that, that King Saul, he crashed and burned. And then God says, listen, man looks at the outward appearance. I look at the heart. I don't see the way people see. Let's pick this shepherd boy, even after we interview all of his older brothers, and let's make him the king. This is a man after my own heart. And the problem is we're so good at looking at externals, looking at outward appearance, looking at what you should have. Well, you got the right degree, or you've got the right background, or you got the right, you know, pedigree. So you, you know, we're trusting in you, and this is the way man looks at things as opposed to God. And I think that goes all the way back to Genesis when we see the second born uh, and not the firstborn who should be the one who goes the distance in all of these narratives, uh, and we see the unlikely person. Even Joseph, think about the end of the last 10 chapters of Genesis, right? Joseph, he's rejected by his brothers. He's not the oldest, and yet he's the one who becomes the quote-unquote savior of Israel during that period of time by saving them from famine. So I think God's trying to teach us a lesson, just like the man who delivers Israel from Goliath is a boy with a slingshot. Those are the kinds of things that remind us that God saves, uh, whether by many or few, and we need to trust in Him, not in our chariots and horses. Does that help, Bill? Amen. That does help. I mean, I always, I sort of thought of it as that our firstborn flesh must serve, must must serve our new spiritual nature, our second born again. So we're born two times, one in the flesh, which is not the one that gets to heaven, I keep thinking, and our second birth in this born again. And through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, is is the birth that really is the blessing one, the one that. But I appreciate so much your input. Yes, <clears throat> my voice is cracking up. Well, that's but, a good uh, example thanks. that you give, Bill, because I think every single thing that we look at, that we think this should not win like the church persecuted now, the Bible says, is the church triumphant then? And all the people that are outcast, all the people that we wouldn't think, as it says in 1 Corinthians, right, not many noble, not many not many that are powerful, not many that are dignified in the world's eyes, but these are the people of God, and God is choosing the low things of the world to shame the wise, because he wants the boasting to be about him, not about us. And I think that's the principle that is often uh, being, being demonstrated by the narrative of Scripture, and also even the second birth. That's the one that matters, not the first birth, or who you're born into the world, uh, whose family you're born into. So that's a great, great uh, illustration, Bill. Thanks for that question. It's great to have it. Let's go to Mickey now. Uh, it's hard to believe here from Orlando, Florida, but uh, we'll believe you, Mickey. <laughs> uh, welcome to the program. It's Pastor Mike Fabares. How can I help? Oh, Pastor Mike, your explanations have been marvelous. You're a blessing. Thank you. I have a question about where to find a scripture that I read in the Bible that I can't find about where we as believers and we don't witness to tell unbelievers about the gospel, that we will be held accountable. Well, the passage I first think of when you say that is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, 
which says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. That may not be the passage you're thinking of, but that's the passage that leads into the fact that we are his ambassadors. And I always tell people, if you're never representing Christ, doesn't mean you're not an ambassador. It just means you're a bad ambassador. And the thing that reminds us of how critical this is, because we know the fear of the Lord. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God if you're not clothed in Christ. So I have a responsibility to speak up for him. But it may be a more specific passage you're thinking of. Can you think of anything else in the text that might jog my memory to to bring you to that passage? And I can't remember, was it in the Old Testament? Mm. But I I really believe it was in the New Testament. But it's kind of boggling my mind that I cannot find that scripture. Because it's, it's not only important for us to remember, but for others that are struggling in that. Well, how about 1 Corinthians chapter 9? I was just uh, reminded of this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16, right. where Paul says, If I preach the gospel, that gives me no grounds for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me, and woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Is that the passage you might be thinking well, of? That's not, the, that's not the passage, but that is close enough. <laughs> that's a good one, right? That should be enough that, to convict that us all. Corinthians? That's 1 right. Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16. And it really goes into verse 17 as well, talking about it's our stewardship. And Paul's speaking autobiographically about his stewardship, but we have a similar stewardship, as I just quoted from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're all ambassadors of Christ. We've been entrusted with the message of reconciliation. And if we don't use that message, if we don't describe that to others, then I think we have uh, we failed in our job as uh, people that are supposed to be... That's how we must see it. That's how we must see it. Mickey... If that is your real Thank name. You. Thank you, Pastor. <laughs> yes, that's my real very name. Very <laughs> good. Well, that's that's perfect. Did you hopefully you didn't Orlando. move to Orlando because your name was Mickey. Hey, I think that other Mickey needs to know some things oh, too. Oh, you could preach to that Mickey. It's really in trouble, isn't it? Well, thanks for the call, Mickey. We appreciate it. Go shine the light there in Orlando, Florida. Hey. We've got the mailbag segment coming up next. Uh, This is Open Line with Dr. Michael Riddelnik on Moody Radio. This is Mike Fabares sitting in for him, and we'll be back with that mailbag segment right after this. Each week on Open Line with me, Dr. Michael Riddelnik, we sit around our radio kitchen table and study the scriptures together. You can become a Kitchen Table Partner by supporting OpenLine each month. As a benefit to becoming a partner, you'll receive a bi-weekly email called A Bible Study Moment, where I'll share Bible study tips, answer some common Bible questions, and encourage you in your spiritual walk. Become a Kitchen Table Partner today. Call 888-644-7122 or go to openlineradio.org. Welcome back to Open Line. I'm Dr. Mike Fabares filling in for Dr. Michael Riddelnik today, and it's the mailbag segment that we love the mailbag segment. It's a chance where we answer your questions that you've written into the website. And joining me, as always, is our producer, Trish McMillan. Trish, we have more mailbag questions. We do. These don't stop, which is fantastic. And I think we need to do a mailbag program soon. Uh, where we just take mailbag questions, but we're not there yet. Um, so in the meantime, <laughs> we are. Uh, our first question is from Chris in Tennessee, listens to WFCM. Matthew 10, 28 is a sobering statement about fearing him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. 
who is Jesus' warning addressed to? Uh, Chris is reading a commentary that says it's for born-again believers and wondering if you agree with that. Well, if you read the next verse, he goes on to remind those certainly who trust in him that we are not to fear because we are more value than many sparrows and God is taking care of even the sparrows. So here's the deal. The kind of fear that we ought to have of God is that he is the great king, the great sovereign one. And of course, we have a healthy fear of God because that's the beginning of wisdom. That's what the scripture says. But when it comes to fear of him casting our soul into hell, right? That's only theoretical because we know there is no condemnation for those in Christ, right? Romans chapter 8, verse 1, and for me to doubt the finished work of Christ and the arrangement that God made that if I put my trust in what Christ has done, I have no condemnation over me, right? Perfect love in that sense casts out all fear because that fear has to do with judgment, and that's the judgment, 1 John 5, that I don't have to incur. So I don't fear that I'm going to be cast into hell, but it doesn't mean I don't have a great fear of the Lord that a a child would have of their father. My my dad was a police officer, and, uh, you know, drove a motorcycle and carried a gun. I never thought he was going to shoot me with the gun, but I had great respect for him as my dad and what he said goes. And of course, I got to do what he says and do the chores. And I respected him. He wasn't like a, a, a schoolyard buddy. And that's the problem with so many people where they don't have the biblical view of God that we should have that is rightly described by the word fear, which means it's not, it's not, it's not a, a casual relationship. But when it comes to fear of I'm going to be cast into hell, no, I don't think that is directed toward us, not us who have put our trust in Christ. We know that we have no fear of that kind of judgment, that condemnation. We should have a healthy respect and fear for being called in, as it says in Romans 14, as his servants to give an account for our our stewardship. And that's something that we should all have a kind of, uh, as the Bible says, we ought to live with that kind of concern about our holy living, but not the fear of being cast into hell. Okay. All right. Thank you for that um, that clarification for us. I hope that helps, Chris. Our next question is from Isabel in Florida. She listens to WKES. And her question is about um, dealing with a relationship where she's having some theological conversations with her son-in-law. Um, he is studying and living what the Bible says, mostly based on the Old Testament, but he'll say things that sound a little bit off, and one of those is this statement. Uh, Nowhere in the Bible does it say that we go straight to heaven or that believers are the only ones who have eternal life. When a non-believer dies, he's not eternal, which in turn would mean that they don't stay in hell forever. She wants to know, is is any of that true? How true is that? And how do you respond when we're fit. My secondary question then is how do we respond when we're faced with someone who, um, especially in a closer relationship like this one with a son-in-law, that you, um, how do you respond when you may have questions about what they're saying, but you don't know if it's right or not? Right. Well, here's what I would say, uh, and, and I'll maybe facetious for a minute. Let's build all of our theology on Genesis chapter 1. Right. Let's never go into Genesis 2, 3, or 4, or 5. Let's just let's not even go into the rest of the Bible. Let's just all build our theology on what it says in Genesis 1. Well, that would be an incomplete view of many, many things, right? Yes. including sin yes. and salvation. So 
there, there's something we call in theology progressive revelation. God did not reach out from a cloud and give Adam and Eve a leather-covered Bible with 66 books in it. Uh, God was building this revelatory library of books as time went on. So if you're just reading the Old Testament, and that's all you're reading, you're missing a lot of things. As it says in Ephesians chapters 2 and 3, we're missing the whole concept of the mystery of the church. Or 1 Corinthians 15, I tell you a mystery, something that wasn't formally revealed. Not all of us are going to sleep, but but we're all going to be changed. And so he speaks then about the instantaneous change of some that are going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, just like First. Thessalonians chapter 4 says. So we need to remember that someone who's reading the Old Testament and then trying to say definitively, here's what happens to someone when they die. I'm going to say, read the whole book. God has given us more. Jesus has come on the scene, and he's He's used those apostles to write the New Testament, the apostles and prophets of the New Testament, to give us the fullness of God's revelation. Now, there are some things God didn't tell us, right? There's clearly more that we're going to know when we see him face to face, 1 John chapter 3, but I have to read the whole of Scripture to know whether or not people are put into two groups and go to heaven and hell, what happens when someone dies. I've got to read 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, or, or Philippians chapter 1, that to live is Christ, to die is gain. I mean, all of these passages have to come into play to build our theology. This is called systematic theology. We systematize under any topic all that the Bible says. And I think even your son who, or your son-in-law who's talking about, well, here's what I think based on the Old Testament, we could play that game all the way back to, well, let's just build our theology based on the first five verses of Genesis 1. It wouldn't be fair, and it wouldn't be right, and it wouldn't be wise. So we have to look at all of Scripture and then build our theology. And I think you're not going to come to the conclusions, Isabel, that you just said your family member is coming to because he's not considering and applying the whole of Scripture to the topic of the afterlife. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, when we have the conversation, I guess, how do we know that, uh, like, if, if I'm having a conversation with a friend, I tend to not be very quick on my feet to come up with answers um, to if something, like, it can sound off, but I don't know if it's wrong or right, or I don't remember exactly how the Bible says it. So what would you recommend doing in that situation? This is a little less of a Bible question. Yeah. But in that relationship, you know, like, I feel like every time I would have that conversation, be, hold on a minute, I need to go look that up, and can I get back to you? And I would have this whole list of unfinished, um, not arguments, but uh, questions that I would have to look up. How do you you handle something when, when you think it might be theologically off? Um, and you're not sure right. if it is. Well, I think too much of what we think needs to happen in conversation is what we're hearing on talk radio or a podcast where everyone's just quick-witted and they're quick with their tongue and they're bouncing arguments back and forth and one-liners are wrestling people to the mat with their answers. Real life is not that way. Not everyone is a, you know, a golden-tongued podcaster. So we need to have the relationships, which I think are most effective, where we say things like, hey, let me write that down. Let me look in the Bible and get back to you. I mean, some of my most effective evangelistic engagements with some very smart people have been weekly. Let's just meet every week for breakfast on Tuesday morning, and let's just go through your questions about Christianity. This is not a debate. It's not a talk show. Uh, We're just going to get 
into the scriptures and the gospel. Give me your questions. I'll write them down. And um, and and if I don't know something this week or I need to think about how to respond, uh, let me get back to you next week. If it's a close relationship, and maybe let me get back to you tomorrow. But I think we need an ongoing dialogue and not trying to play gotcha games with our words. Some people are gifted in that way, but most of us are not. So we need more time to process, more time to think. And then maybe even like you've done in this case, Isabel, you drop a line to someone that might know a little bit more about how to approach the question. You get that input, then you go back and you have the discussion. And if he brings up something else, you write it down. You say, let me get back to you on that. That's a fair way to have a discussion about any Christian doctrine or truth at all. And it's much a much slower paced, less of a gotcha kind of format, if you know what I mean. Yeah. No, that's very helpful. Thank you. Okay, last question for this um, for today in the mailbag is from Austin. Um, what he uh, listens on the website, and he says that his mother says that she doesn't, who is religious, um, says she doesn't have time to read her Bible. Is it a sin? He wants to know to not read the Bible. Does the Bible talk about Bible reading? No, Trish, you said he doesn't have time. Is that is that what you? I'm said? sorry. I'm sorry. That I I misread that. Does not have to read her Bible. Oh, There's okay. no time in that. that. The word isn't that. Doesn't have to read her Bible. Yeah. Well, here's what I would say. The Bible has presented itself to us because it is God's revealed word as the lamp to our feet and the light to our path. If we're not in it, if we're not saturating our minds in it, to quote Colossians 3, if our mind is not richly indwelt by the word of Christ, right, then we're going to have trouble. It needs to be the thing that we're meditating on day and night, to quote Psalm 1. That's the man who's blessed in his way. Now, if you're not getting it in your brain, doesn't mean you have to sit down with a lamp and an easy chair, you know, and read it at a slow pace. It, it may be that you're listening to it, or you have someone read it to you. I don't know how many times I've sat by a bedside in a hospital and read the scripture to somebody. Uh, it doesn't mean they didn't get the Bible in their brain today. They did, but it was read to them. So we have to get that information that's external to us in our minds, and the Word of God is the objective, propositional, external truth that God has given, and He's given it to us so that we can get it in us. And the way to do that is for us to have it read to us, to read it, to have someone read it to us. Somehow we've got to get this truth in our minds, or it will not serve the purpose that God says it's supposed to serve, and that is to sanctify us. Sanctify them in truth. John 17 says, your word is truth. So yes, it would be a sin to say, I'm not going to get that book into my life or into my brain. Uh, And if that's what she's saying, that's a remarkable thing to say. And I trust, trust there's not many people listening to me right now that would say such a thing. So I hope that helps, Trish. Yeah, I think so. I I also thought about um, Psalm 119, uh, 9 and 11 that say, you know, well, I'll go with 11. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It is that that word of truth, even in Ephesians 6, when it talks about the spiritual armor, you know, like this is what helps us to live that truth, to not sin in all of the other ways. Absolutely. And how can, how can you go through the Christian life and say, I don't want to know what God has to say? We have to, and we have to get it. He's written a book. The Holy Spirit has written a book. And I know some people say, well, it's the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit wrote a book, and he wants us to pick it up and read it. Have it read to us, whatever it takes to get that book into our brain. Yes. So I hope all of you listening to me right now are going to get into your Bibles today. We need it every day. Well, we got more questions coming up. My name is Dr. Mike Fabares. You're listening to Open Line with Dr. Michael Ridelnik on, on Moody Radio. And I'm so glad to be your guest host today. And we're going to get to more of your questions right after this break. 
One of my favorite theology professors of all time was Charles Ryrie. He could take high-level biblical teaching and make it simple enough for me to understand. That's what he's done with his classic book, Balancing the Christian Life. Dr. Ryrie takes the truths of spiritual living and makes them easy to comprehend and practical to live out. You can request it today when you give a gift of any size to OpenLine. Call 888-644-7122 or go to openlineradio.org. Welcome back to Open Line. I'm Dr. Mike Fabares sitting in for Dr. Michael Ridelnik, who's out there celebrating our graduates today at Moody Bible Institute. What a great day it is here on campus, and I'm happy to be in studio sitting in for him. We're going to go back to your questions now. Let's go to Amy in Chicago listening to WMBI. How can I help? Hi, and thanks for taking my call. So there's something that I've been wondering about for a while that um, I don't think is really addressed in Scripture. And it's um, about creation. We know that God created everything good in the beginning, and then the fall of man caused um, all of creation to be altered. But I think about some things that I, I wonder if God, did he go back and, like, do a secondary, like, uh, modification of creation? Uh, did he create new, some new species, things like things that you know are part of the fall, like uh, fleas and ticks and mosquitoes and those sort of things. Right. Um, we know that there was no death before the fall, but yet we have animals that are obligate carnivores. They're strictly meat eaters. They've got to kill and eat. And, okay, their digestive systems and their teeth are set up for that. Did he go through and redo things? What do you think? Yeah, I, I think the way that we understand the pre-fall world and even the pre-Diluvian world the, before the flood, I think we would be shocked were we to go back and see it. It would be so distinct and so different. Uh, now, I believe that God created with a clear view of where things were going. So whatever was needed in the whole ecosystem of the world or the genetic makeup of human beings, uh, I think there was enough variation within the genetic code of human beings to allow for what takes place and is called the curse of creation. Cursed is the ground because of you. So we have the building blocks of the human body, everything found in the earth, everything found in the soil, all the minerals, all the all the, the periodic table, and it's now cursed. So something is messed up, as it says in Romans 8, to where what comes out of it in its replication is now deficient, and it changes everything. And of course, you're going to say, well, how could we survive without bacteria, or how could we survive without the ecosystem and, and having ticks or fleas or whatever, as you put it? Of course, we need that now because of the world in which we have, but I do think we have a changing. I don't think it needed a special miraculous set of sub-miracles for God to make those things things work. I think in the curse itself, there was something of the perfect made imperfect, and therefore everything then went down the pathway of, uh, of death. Now, remember the death before the flood. 
every time we have an age that is described, they're, they're living 800, 900, 950 years old. So we have a different kind of world, a different kind of planet, different geology, different atmosphere, different human bodies, at least in the sense that they're not dying the way they are after the flood. Something happened at the flood that was so catastrophic in changing the environment in which people lived that soon as we then start seeing people after the flood, they start dying at 200 and then 175 and then it gets to 125. And then by the time we get to King David, think of him, he dies at 90, I think it is. And it says he died at a good old age. Well, that wouldn't have been a good old age uh, back right after the flood, right? If you didn't live to be 200 or 175, that would be really sad. So we have everything continuing to degenerate. So I think there was modifications within the structure of every human body and everything in the soil and everything in the ecosystem, everything in the animal zoological kingdom, everything was changed, but it was just what is perfect was made imperfect. It was put in subjection, as it's put in Romans 8, to futility, and that changed everything in the way things functioned. So yeah, things look different. I think they look different. I think, you know, if you opened up their mouth and looked at their dental records, they would look different, but not uh, so radically different that we couldn't say, well, they look like human beings. Of course, they look like human beings. But their bodies, I think, were different. The functioning of even their digestive systems were different. And so we have a world now that we wish could get back to where it was. And one day it will, when God exercises his power and transforms human bodies, including the soil and the ground, and everything is made right. We can't wait for those days. And Jesus has accomplished it by his death. And one day we'll recreate the world to be something fabulous. So we look forward to that. Amy, does that help, that explanation? Yes, thank you very much. Excellent question. Let's go to Florida now. Raquel listening on WKES. How can I help? Yes, good morning. Um, my question is, in order for me to learn, and I don't have any, like, idea or right or wrong, but I wanted to know regarding donating the organs when you pass, when you die, if there are Bible verses that uh, explain or give us an idea. And, again, it's for me to learn. Right. And thank you for what you're doing. Well, thank you, Raquel. That's a very insightful question. And here's the reason you might ask that as a Christian, because the Bible certainly holds the body in high esteem. And in in death, we lay it aside. We wait for the resurrection. Uh Well, what about giving my kidney or my lenses of the corneas of my eye to someone for help? I think there's no problem with us doing that, as long as we're doing it with a reputable uh, process and it's done with love and care for people that need them. But we don't just take the body and treat it with disrespect, right? Uh, We might do something sacrificial for the good of other people, but we need to understand that the body itself, I think, plays a very important role in the biblical uh, resurrection. In other words, the death of Christ, we wouldn't have wanted to donate Christ's body to medicine, for instance, uh, because we knew that body would be resurrected. But what if uh, a piece of that body was missing, as, of course, many pieces were, as he was stabbed in the side? Well, we would say, God, of course, is going to recreate that completely whole and make his body glorious as, in fact, it was. So I hope that helps, Raquel. Great question. I think every Christian who's thought about our uh, bodies and the importance of the resurrection has asked that question. I'm glad you asked it today. Well, we're so thankful for you listening and calling in to Open Line today. We've got a great Open Line team here, Trish McMillan, of course, and Courtney Young. And in answering your phones, I said it was Charlie, but Gabby's been on the phones. That's who you've been talking to when you called in, and we're so grateful for her. Uh, You want to find more information about Open Line, go to openlineradio.org. 
Open Line with Dr. Michael Redelnik is a production of the Moody Bible Institute and also Moody Radio. And I'm so glad to be your special guest host today, Mike Fabares. Keep listening here to Open Line. Dr. Redelnik will be back again next week. Thanks for listening.